Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As the reigning World Rugby Referee of the Year, it's not surprising Wayne Barnes believes communication is at the heart of all good leadership. But the veteran of more than 200 premiership matches and almost 100 test matches isn't just talking about what happens on the rugby field. It's also a skill he needs in his other career as a barrister, specialising in global investigations and white-collar crime, as well as corporate governance and compliance. It's a long way from his first job crushing blackberries at the local Ribena factory. This is the Playmaker's Playbook, brought to you by Build Corp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmaker's Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Wayne Barnes is one of the most respected officials in any sport anywhere in the world. Respected and liked, which is not always easy for a referee. And it hasn't always been the case. After New Zealand lost a quarter-final at the 2007 World Cup, there was a bar in Queenstown that installed a urinal in Wayne's likeness. You can work that out for yourself. And then there was this moment in the 2013 Premiership final in England, and it cost Dylan Hartley his place on the Lions tour to Australia. This isn't how you behave as a captain. Okay, please keep your comments to yourself, or I may have to deal with it by way of penalty. Listen to me, please. Just listen. Listen to me. If you talk to me like that, and I think it's to me, I will have to deal with it. Do you understand? Okay. Well, he had just spoken to Dylan Hartley, hadn't he, about how he spoke to the referee. The man who's never afraid to make the hard calls, Wayne Barnes, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Thanks very much for having me on, Nick. It's a pleasure to chat to you. Good to see you and good to see that you're well. It is is good to catch up. Before we talk rugby and leadership, I just want to find out how you're travelling right now because here in Australia we feel like we've sort of come through the worst of the pandemic. It seems from afar anyway that England still right in the thick of it. Um, It's been an amazing 10 weeks. Um, You know, I think we all learn from experiences, don't we? And I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. But um, no one's experienced this. You know, I've spoken to my great aunt, Syl, um, who lives back in the forest of Dean about the Spanish flu, which she remembers a little bit of. Um, but the, these are totally unprecedented times. And so we're, we're learning on the hoof and we're, and we're trying to, I guess, understand it all each day, each week by, by the, the regular updates. Um, but 
in the Monday before we went into lockdown, you know, so a week before we went into lockdown, I was getting ready to referee um, France versus Ireland in the, in the Six Nations, the last Six Nations. And then all of a sudden you get a call that afternoon saying it's off. And by the Friday, you're told that your kids aren't going to school anymore. And then by the Monday, you're working from home. The following week, my wife and I are, are both furloughed. So, you know, over two weeks, you know, your world changes. And it's about how do you adapt? How do you, um, how do you keep active? How do you keep your mind active? How do you keep your children active? So um, it, it's, it's, been, it's been nothing short of extraordinary. And, um, but, you know, we're, we're seeing some, some glimmers of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, you know, this weekend, um, they've just relaxed as of Monday to be allowed to go and visit other families. So that's good. Two weeks ago, we were starting, we were told we could go out to drive to places, you know, in, in the eight weeks leading up to that, we were all just walking around Twickenham where I live and the streets and the parks of Twickenham, um, just within our little family bubble. But now we're going out a little bit further, getting to some forests and some woods and letting the children uh, run feral. Um, and they're loving that. And we're loving that extra bit of freedom. So there are some glimmers of hope, but we've still got a long way to go. I think, Nick, you know, and you just see the amount of people who've um, died in the UK. I think we're up to about 38, 39,000. You know, that's heartbreaking for so many families. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And there's no blueprint for leaders in this situation to know what to do. I think everyone was kind of feeling their way through it. We saw in New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern closed things down, really, you know, nailed the infection rate very early on, but perhaps the economy suffered a little bit more. Uh, here in Australia, uh, Scott Morrison took a, a little more uh, pragmatic approach. We have managed to flatten the curve. And yes, we are suffering economically, but perhaps not to the extent that New Zealand is. How do you think Boris Johnson, as you say, there's been a lot of death, a lot of infection in England. How will Boris Johnson and his leadership in this situation be remembered or, or be judged in, in years to come, do you think? It was very hard to become political um, in these times, you know, particularly as an arbiter, someone who is impartial. You know, that is my job as a, as a, as a referee. Um, but I think what we will see at the end of this is um, some, um, some look back, some reflection and see who, who's got it right and who's got it wrong, which was the best way. I, I don't think we know that yet, yet, Nick. I think we're still trying to make sure in the UK that, um, we just get that um, what's been named as the R, the infection rate down below one to make sure that this continues on the downward path to reducing the amount of infections. And obviously on the back of that, the, the amount of deaths that we see. Um, we're following as, as a sport and as, as a family, we're following the guidance of the government and the, the chief medical advisor of England, but also of the RFU to make sure that we take the best information out there. Um, you know, even just little small things like do we send our daughter back to school, which is opening next week? Again, you, you search as a, as a parent um, to, for the best information. And you've got to assume that the information you're getting from your government and from your chief medical uh, officer in, um, in rugby is, is up to date and is accurate. I, I think everyone will come out of this and will have learned something, whether it was the immediate lockdown that happened in New Zealand. I'm still you know, very much in contact with some good friends down there and hearing some wonderful stories about you know how they have got rid of um, of covid and there's no uh, new and active cases over there um but then you hear some some tales from friends across in the states or you know before what happened in the uk and spain and italy so um i don't think there'll be any 100 percent right answer and i think that in reflection we will all learn something from this and 
I think we'll learn something as an individual as well, just about how we behaved over the last 10 weeks. So um, a huge amount of reflection at the end of this. No doubt. And uh, we've all learned something about resilience. That's for sure in all, in all walks of life. Um, I do want to talk about the two areas in your life that, uh, you know, your two careers that you've lived concurrently for uh, the last many years, and that being obviously a, a rugby referee of uh, international repute, but also a barrister. Let's start with rugby, and we're going to wind it all the way back. Why did you want to be a referee? I don't think I ever wanted to be a referee, but it was pretty clear when um, I started off refereeing and playing at the same time, which I was better at. Um, and a lot of my uh, mates would tell me that straight away. Um, and when you're in a, in a university first 15, it's pretty, pretty brutal, the, um, the banter that goes on. And so uh, when, when you discuss with them, should you carry on with your playing career or concentrate on your refereeing career? And they unanimously agree that I should carry on with my refereeing career. <laughs> that probably tells you a little bit about uh, my playing career, Nick. Um, but I, I, I come from the Forest of Dean, which... Um, a lot of your listeners um, over in Australia uh, won't know that area, but it's a hotbed of rugby in uh, in England. It's over in Gloucestershire on, on the on the Welsh border, and we have a lot of similarities to the to the Welsh. Um, we have, for example, marching brass bands. We have coal mining, and we have so many sheep that they probably outnumber um, the, the amount of people in the Forest of Dean. But we have this passion for rugby, um, and you 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 grow up on rugby in the Forest of Dean. Um, and that's that's what I did. I played from a young age, four or five. Um, and then I got injured playing at around 15. And then just a combination of things. A, a friend of my dad's was a referee. My school teacher was a referee. And they said, look, why don't you give refereeing a go rather than um, just um, standing on the sideline watching on a Saturday or come and help out with some of the, the, the inter-school matches. And, and that's what I did. Um, and I quite enjoyed it. And... Um, and I got a couple of couple of quid, couple of pounds um, for doing it, my travelling expenses, um, and um, you got a couple of free pints after a match. And as a fifteen-year-old, that would that was pretty pretty good actually. Um, and so um, I thought, well, let's keep doing this. And by the time I got to university, knee had got a bit better. Um, I could play a little bit, and I balanced my university playing up at that you know, well-known university, the uh, rugby playing university of uh, Norwich. Um, oh, yes, not well. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, a lot of top class players have come out of that university. <laughs> um, but um, so I play on a, on a midweek. We, we, our sport in uh, the UK is played on a Wednesday at university. We play on a Wednesday and then I'd referee on a Saturday and again earn a few more quid um, traveling. Um, and then, um, then I made the decision with the help of my, my teammates that I'd concentrate on on the refereeing side um, and that was about 21 22 and i joined what's known as the national panel the top 50 referees um in england when i was 21 and i was uh, the youngest to join the panel at that point so it was you know it was it was exciting times i was i was playing at a level that i'd never um I was refereeing at a level i'd never played and so i was getting to see parts of the country as well i was off to the west country again norwich for those you don't know is right on um, the east coast of uh, England, right where the, the, the backside of England points out. But I was getting over to the west country back home. I was down to the southwest to Cornwall, up north to Yorkshire and Lancashire. So I was getting to see some of the country as well. Um, so it was, it was good fun. It was exciting, you know, getting to meet some wonderful characters around the game. 
so that was 2001. You were 21, and you and you made the the national panel. And then uh, 2005. Do we call it? Do we say that you turned pro in 2005? Is that is that the 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 term? And then a year later, you referee your first Test match. 2007. It, like it all seems to happen pretty quickly. 2007. You're you're at a World Cup. Yeah, definitely those two years. Um probably three three four years so 2003 um, was my first premiership game during the world cup um in um in australia and you'll remember nick uh, that that's the world cup that england beat the australians in in the final up yeah we're all um, trying to forget so thanks for that <laughs> um so i refereed my first premiership match then um and then it went very quickly um and you know, 2006 was my first um, international with Fiji and Samoa um, up in Suva. Um, and then going into the World Cup, they only take 12 referees to a World Cup, Nick. And um, it was clearly I, I was going as number 11 or number 12 when they selected us. It was a bit of surprise for me, a bit of a surprise um, perhaps to some others. Um, I'd only refereed maybe five ma- international matches um, by the time I'd started at the World Cup. But I thought like just a great opportunity to gain some experience. Um, and we see that with players sometimes, don't we? You know, that players sneak in that 30, 31. They mightn't be in that top 15 or in that 23, but they're going for the next World Cup. They're going to be, you know, perhaps um, the people who will be in that 15, 23 in the, in the following World Cup. And, and that's how I, I saw it from my point of view. So um, you can imagine uh, I was pretty surprised to get a, a quarterfinal. Um, but also not just any quarterfinal, the quarterfinal between the hosts and the favourites, New Zealand and France in uh, 2007. Um, and, um, you know, my career um, definitely jumped into the, the spotlight a little um, during that World Cup. OK, we've just got... Referee Wayne Barnes has deemed such a rising star, he was awarded the World Cup quarterfinal after just 11 tests. But following the All Blacks' loss, his performance raised a few eyebrows. Uh, I thought it was... Pretty average, really. With the French hot on attack early in the second half, the Englishman sent Luke McAllister to the sin bin for obstruction. Well, that's garbage. Luke McAllister was turning. He's entitled to do it. And there was further dismay 15 minutes later when a forward pass that led to France's second try went unnoticed. No question. That was forward. The conversion putting France in front on the scoreboard where they stayed. That was New Zealand television report at the time. Another World Cup failure for New Zealand. It should be said, though, that uh, they certainly made up for it in the couple of World Cups after that, 2011 and 2015, where they went back to back. But, Wayne, in the wake of that, um, should we call it an alleged forward pass, uh, there were lynch mobs formed in New Zealand. How did that test you emotionally, uh, personally? And, and who was there putting an arm around you trying to make sure that you were okay? I definitely think that's a point um, in my refereeing career where I thought now I even have to start taking this, you know, extremely professionally and I need to get better and I need to improve um, or I might as well give this up because it's not worth it. You know, Um, I say in jest, but there were uh, death threats. There were mentions in New Zealand Parliament and I was, um, I think I've shared this with you before, uh, Nick, you know, I was named the third most hated man in New Zealand that year. Um, so, um, you know, that, that, there were some, there were some hard times and, um, and you, you, you do sit back and you think, right, how am I going to get better? And, and you, I think we've all got people around us who we trust and we confide in, um, and they, they can be coaches, but they can just be friends or they can be family members. Um, and one, you know, one of my 
close friends in rugby, a guy called Nigel Yates. Um, he was also coaching me. He, he refereed at a decent level, but never international level. And me and him sat down and we discussed, do we want this? Um, how do we make sure that that doesn't ha happen? How do we get better? Um, and that was kind of a, quite a defining moment. And so I went away and I made sure that, you know, my preparation became even better. It became more professional. My, you know, my fitness um, improved um, and became more of an, an elite athlete than perhaps, you know, I'd just taken it for granted that I was always quite fit as a 27, 28 year old. And then a lot around mental resilience um, and how do you stop worrying about what other people think and, um, and what the public think and, you know, social media and all the things that were starting to come into the, the forefront of, um, of sport and in, in general society. So, um, you know, 2007, a real pivotal moment for me um, and perhaps, you know, said, I'm going to take this, you know, I, I want to be the best. I want to be as good as anyone and I'm going to try and do everything I can to do that. And history now tells us that uh, you were a success. You did become the best because Japan last year was your uh, fourth World Cup and, uh, and you were named International Referee of the Year, World Rugby Referee of the Year in 2019. Uh, do you consider yourself now a leader in your field? Is, is, is that something that you see yourself as? Um, first of all, I, I've always thought um, awards for referees um, is, is, is slightly odd. Um, you know, when, when you, you, you take about the, the Australians and the John Eels medal, um, I think it's called, if I, if I remember Correct. rightly, um, you've got players who are competing in different positions for different teams. So you've got Michael Hooper playing and you've got um, David Pocock playing and they compete against each other, you know, week in, week out. Or you then go for the World Rugby Awards and you've got Steve Hansen competing against Eddie Jones, competing against Michael Checker week in, week out. So there is that competition. Um, when you get a Referee Year Award, it is the culmination of us as a team working together to get better. Um, and that's um, what I've... I hope I've done over the last um, 10 or 12 years is to create that environment around, let's just try and get everyone better. And I think this, this World Cup was a, the best example of it where um, we're all very willing to, to share. We're all ve very willing um, to, to go and watch and improve and help each other. Um, not thinking, what about if he gets a, a game that I wanted to do? Or what about if he's named World Referee of the Year? Or what about if he referees the World Cup final or quarterfinal. We, we're actually quite um, selfless in, in that point as a group of referees now. Um, and I always remember a, a really, a really stark conversation sticks in my mind um, as a young referee. And I would have been, it would have been around that 2007, 2008 time. Someone was doing a Q&A and I was sitting in the crowd, an international referee, you know, done 30, 40 tests and was asked, you know, are you in competition with the other? And his answer it wasn't, he didn't think about it when time is in, in, in instinctive reaction was yes, the, I am in competition with these other, other referees. And that really shocked me um, as someone who had always thought that we were all in it together. And, and I thought from that day, well, we've got to change that attitude. Mm. And, and I think we do see that now. And um, I've just come off a call chatting with um, Yako Piper um, and Ben O'Keefe, just seeing how we all are. Um, and just sharing some ideas about what we've been reading, what we've been learning, what we've been uh, um, kind of watching, just to try and improve ourselves a little bit, because we want each other to get better. Um, and so 
I'm not I'm not sure I, I'm a leader in, in that sense, but what I'm I'm going to try and continue to do until like my my legs stop me running around and um, and I stop refereeing is to ensure that we are a group who try and help each other and don't compete with each other. And when someone asks that question today or in 10 years time, I want the answer to be most definitely not. We're here to make each other better. Do you think that's representative of a culture in rugby? I mean, I've seen that with, you know, you talk about players competing against each other and we know how physical it gets, but there is a collegiate feel about um international rugby and yes there's a lot happens on the pitch but gee there's a lot of players from different countries who are very close off the pitch as well is there is that that experience that you've just described a shared experience in the playing ranks as well oh, I, I think so you only got to look at what was happening in um, Japan during the World Cup with um, all the the whatsapp groups that were that were being kind of sprung up with all the ex-greats, you know, the Gregans and the Tyndalls were were meeting up for a couple of beers down in Tokyo Station. And then all of a sudden, um, Andrew Mertens would be joining them. He was always keen for a, a beer or two. Um, and then Tom Shanklin would be flying in and he was saying, right, where are you all? So there was this collection during the World Cup, you know, of great players who wanted to, you know, just to share stories and to have, have, have fun. And, you know, the one, the one thing that, brings rugby people together I think is is the love of sport and also the love of enjoyment you know just having a good time and I thought we saw that in Japan and, and we're no different to that a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com um, you've had 14 or 15 years at the top of the game now. You've um, rubbed shoulders with uh, officials, um, coaches, great leaders in teams. Who are the best leaders that you've seen in the game over the last you know, 15 or, or 20 years and what made them great leaders? Uh, you, you always get asked this around, you know, who, who are the best captains? Um, and... I think it totally depends upon you as a, as a person who you relate with. You know, we, we all like different people for different reasons. Um, I, I like two things. I like people who are honest with me. And so during a rugby match, um, if I can go up to a captain and say, look, this is what I'm seeing. Can you change? Um, and most captains and the best captains are the ones who are going, yeah, we can put that right for you. Have you considered that it might be this? Um, I, I always, I always appreciate that. I, I think as long as there's that mutual respect, and I've got to listen to that point, Nick, as well. It's not me just going, no, I disagree with you. It's me listening to what he's got to say as well. Um, and then you also you, you have other players or other captains who just dismiss what you've got to say or don't want to listen. And to me, I, I think referees and players and coaches have to work together f- to make the game a little bit better. Um, you know, during the game and off the field as well. And so if I'm trying to make the game better by saying, look, you you need to give a bit more space on the back foot or your prop needs to be a little bit higher on engagement, it's not because I, I don't want him to do that. I'm just trying to make the game a bit better and have that game flow. Um, so by just saying, no, I disagree with you, isn't going to help the game. So the, the best leaders, I think, um, on the pitch have always been ones who see it as a joint effort between referees and players. 
Um, so that's that's always the leaders um, I, I enjoy. And then the, the leaders off the field, I guess the coaches, the ones I've always enjoyed the company are the ones who are willing to share. Um, and I guess it's back to the point of, you know, what I think we're trying to do is, um, as referees now is just to get better and make the game better. I think the best coaches that I've enjoyed working with, the ones who are willing to to sit down with me after a match and share, you know, their thoughts. And, you know, and we don't always agree, but as long as I understand where that coach is coming from or where they, they see where I'm coming from, we can we can park our differences on whether we think it's a, a red card or a yellow card or was he offside, was he not? As long as we understand what we're both trying to do. And that's why I've always enjoyed those coaches who are willing to sit down after a match and, and have a beer with me or meet me in a week for a coffee to discuss um, what the game might look like. At the heart of pretty much everything that you've just said is is communication and a willing willingness to listen. And I guess, you know, if we try to take some of these lessons into the workplace, uh, what you've just described is a microcosm of any workplace that you ever step into. The, you know, the manager's got got one idea if you sit down and and listen you put your idea forward you'll find some common ground I'm not suggesting that you always find common ground at the end of the day you're the arbiter but you know it's about uh, respectful conversations well Nick couldn't agree with you more Um, we we went away just in the lead up to the 2015 World Cup which was hosted in England Um, we went the referee team went down to train with the Marines um, down in Limpston um, and they're, first of all, such an impressive group of individuals, um, physically, um, but also mentally. And one thing that they they taught us and, you know, kind of got through to us was the idea that, um, of course, someone eventually has to make a decision. You know, the, the CEO, the, the referee, the coach, the head coach has to make a decision. But you've got to take everyone along with you in understanding that decision. So when they were preparing to go on into it, a new military action or a new battle, they sat people down and got people's views. So they would say, right, this is our goal. This is what we agree has to be our goal. How do we get there? This is our current thoughts, but does anyone have any views? And they would talk about that. You know, you think about that from my my barrister chambers point of view. I've taken that on board um, with how we now start cases. You know, of course we've got an instruction from a client but we sit down and we don't just think, well, this is the only way to do it. We take in all levels of, of, of the team. So from the top end QCs, the, the senior counsels as they're known in Australia, to the junior lawyers. And we say, right, this is what we've got to do. Has anyone got any ideas? Go away, think about it. Let's come back together. And let's really make sure we're all involved in the planning stage. Then, of course, there might be some differences of agreement and the leader, the, the head lawyer in that case, has to make that decision, usually, you know, talking with a client as well. Um, and then off we go. But think about that from a, from a rugby point of view, from a coaching point of view or from a, um, a refereeing point of view. I sit down with my team. We make a plan for the game. Um, how are we going to referee? Um, you know, so the quarterfinal between J- Japan and South Africa was um, one of my knockout games. Right. So Ben O'Keefe on one touchline, Luke Pierce on the other touchline, Rowan Kitt in the van. Right, how are we going to approach this game? What are going to be the key battles? Where do we need to focus our attention? Right, and I, I, I don't have all the ideas. Um, and I get some wonderful ideas from the others, and then we come with a collective plan, right, and then we agree on that plan. And so it's our plan. It's not my plan. It's not Ben's plan. It's not Luke's plan. It's our plan. We go in, and off we go. Then the other thing, which is so crucial, and lawyers do it really badly, 
um, and this is something again we're trying to implement uh, at Fulcrum, um, where I'm at, is reviewing. Sports people do it really well, um, and you know you sit down, you analyze, you work out what worked well is important, but what doesn't work as well. If you think about that in the business world, do we honestly sit down after each case and say, right, let's let's look at what went well, let's look at what didn't go so well, unless it's a catastrophe. Of course, we always review it, but take the you know the normal business sector after each project shuts do we do we constantly review right what can we do better how do we improve and i think there's a lot that the business world can learn from sport um in that in that kind of um aspect and that's something i'm very keen to do um with what we're doing in sports law um and with good governance about constantly reviewing how we get better and that's what you know i think it's given me the longevity in my play in my rugby uh, playing give me much longevity there in my refereeing career uh, um, is to make sure I'm constantly reviewing I'm constantly looking at ways of getting better you talked about Ben O'Keefe I mean you know impressive guy out of New Zealand uh, highly rated around the world as a referee but do you almost take on a role as a as a mentor for a guy like that who's coming through I think we all got all got that role to play. So when we when we sit in um, rooms reviewing Six Nations, so you know Ben came up to do the England versus uh, Wales game in the Six Nations, we'll sit down and we'll have a really honest, robust review um, as a group, and we'll say, look, Ben, I've been in that position before. Um, how did you feel? What did it sound like? Um, did you consider this? Um, and sometimes, it's, yes, I did consider it, but I didn't fancy that decision on that game. Or it might be, do you know what? I just haven't considered that. And sometimes are blindingly obvious um, just until someone's told you it. You know, I, I, I've listened to a few of your, your pods in the lead up to this one, Nick. You know, some of the things that some of the coaches and, um, say are just real basic things. But unless someone's told you, um, you know, listen to Justin Langer, you know, the idea that everyone is different and everyone needs to be treated different. How many times um, have we heard that in a sporting environment? But until people keep reminding you, then you keep thinking, what, why isn't he listening? Why isn't he learning the same as me? Well, it's because he's got a different learning style or that's just not his personality. And you need to be constantly reminded of this. Um, and that's what the, I, I think that, you know, the best coaches are great at is understanding and keep reminding and, and preparing, getting their mind full of all of those fantastic pieces of kind of advice that is out there. And I hope what I'm doing at the moment is imparting some of that to somebody ever so they can pass it on. Absolutely. So you've come out of uh, an environment where it's very collaborative um, and the relationships you've got with captains are mostly collaborative, but I played that little bit of audio at the start of the uh, the 2013 uh, Premiership final and, and Dylan Hartley's red card. How do you reflect on that when you when there's an intransigence there uh, with with a captain? You just can't quite get through to someone, and you do have to go to the within the game the ultimate penalty. Um, you know, how, how yeah, do you reflect um, on that issue? So the first thing, my immediate reflection um, after the game was, this is no longer about um, the game of rugby. This is more about uh, this is going to be about Wayne Barnes and Dylan Hartley. And, and I don't want the headlines to be about that because that detracts from our game. Um, and the great games are the ones where people are talking about fantastic pieces of skill or fantastic kind of competitions and not about the referee. Unfortunately, in 2013, it will be remembered for 
partly a refereeing decision um, and partly about what the player did. Um, so, of course, you look back at that and you think, right, how would I do that differently? Um, how, how could I stop that happening? Was there something I did in the lead up? Was it something that I could have um, helped with to make sure that Dylan didn't um, react in that way? What could I have done? So, of course, you go over all that. But also, Nick, at the end of the day, I have, I have to make decisions, difficult decisions. It's not about um, you know, making sure that people like me. It's about making sure that I, I treat people fairly. And so people know what the parameters are when they step on the pitch. And if people overstep those marks, whether that's be with what they say to me, how they tackle an opponent, um, how they pick up an opponent, I've then got to make a decision. Um, and they're not always going to be popular decisions, um, but it would be wrong of me, and, and particularly for the game, not to make those decisions. And I think 2013 was an example when it would have been wrong of me not to have made that decision. Because in a way, that translates to leadership as well. Not being afraid to make a tough decision, the right decision. And I think it's back to that that idea that we, we spoke about a moment ago, isn't it? That you, you get people's opinions, um, you take the team's view on board, but at some point the buck stops with the person who is in charge of that team, whether that be a captain on the pitch, whether that be a director of rugby or a head coach, or whether it be a CEO of a business. At some point, someone's got to make that decision. And if you try to make that decision um, with popularity in mind, then I think sometimes you can fall down. But if you have a key set of values um, and you know what they are and you stick by them and everyone knows what they are, then you don't fall too far away from that. Um, and look, there must be those decisions taking place across boards at the moment where there are some really tough decisions that are going to be have to be made, not just in sport, but across lots of different companies. The one thing which I'm seeing is done really well at the moment are organizations or companies who are keeping everyone up to date um, and informed um, and are doing it better than some of the companies who it's a bit more of a shock to. And that's what we're trying to do um, within my law firm is keep talking to people. We are going to have to make difficult decisions. Um, same as on a rugby field. I've got to make a difficult decision. But um, if I can explain why I've made it or people know what the, the parameters are before you get on a pitch, then I'm giving everyone the opportunity um, you know, to make a good decision on the pitch. Or at least I'm giving people the understanding of why I'm making um, those decisions throughout. Yeah, and one of my jobs as a referee, I think, and I'm jumping between roles now, is to be a communicator. So when I make a decision using a TMO um, or sending a player off, you as a commentator, Nick, or um, you know, the fan at home or anyone with ref ears on or um, during the game, they need to understand what it is. And that's part of my, my role is to make sure that people understand why my decision making. Not always going to agree with it, but at least you understand why I made it. So there's so much crossover between the two roles. There's no doubt about that. And and I think that um, whenever uh, a referee at the top level is deemed to have had a good game, a, a good performance, one of the first things that's always said is, uh, you know, he communicated so well with the players. He, he took everyone, the players, the viewer, the fan, along for the ride with him or her as as the case may be, and I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Just in terms of the law firm, you you um, you work at a pretty high level um, among you know big organisations, uh, government organisations. You must see good and bad leadership 
is leadership improving in the corporate world as as we uh, as we move forward? I think what um, what our role is is to help keep improving that and improving on good governance within um, the corporate section. Um, and we're seeing, you know, some of the big FTSE 100 companies now making some huge changes um, around diversity, around the, the split between men and women on board to make sure that the input going into, you know, some fantastic companies is a diverse range. And, and what we want to do um, at Fulcrum is really harness that um, kind of good work that's happening in the corporate section into sport, because there's a lot of learnings that sport can pass on to to the corporate world, and I've mentioned some of them about, you know, top class preparation, taking teams with you, um, you know, good, um, good, honest review. But I think there's stuff that sport can learn from good corporate world around, you know, um, what is good governance? How, how do you make sure that your boards are fit for purpose? And we're seeing that we're seeing um, a lot of the sports um, governing bodies that I'm working with at the moment saying, right, okay, tell me how, you know, the Googles, tell me how the the, um, the 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 Amazons, how are they working? How are they making sure that they get a lot of voices around the table? Um, and I, I think that's when things go wrong is often when you don't get a diverse voice at the exec board um, because you you just get a blind spot or you 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 all kind of agree on the same thing because you all went to the same went to the same school or you 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 eat at the same club or um, so my my aim for the sporting world is to make sure that we keep learning um, from the big governing kind of good governance bodies and um, within the FTSE 100 companies and across the world um, and then we can share um, what they're learning back down to the sporting institutions as well. So that takes us to uh, my next question and, and I know that you love coming down to this part of the world and we love having you and and showing you our hospitality in this part of the world. But uh, you also have um, a great fondness for Australian rugby. What have you made of uh, the upheaval in the Australian game over the last couple of months, uh, the executive, the, the board level, and just in the last couple of days, uh, a huge amount of layoffs at head office of Rugby Australia. What's your take on what's happening in this part of the world? I think, first of all, you've got to realise the personal side of it as well. And that's where I, I always try and, um, r remind myself, and I'm saying this as someone who's not leading an organization, um, a director within our company, but you know, I always try and have that personal um, side to it. And so when you do read uh, friends and colleagues who have been um, um, laid off um, at ARU, you, you, you worry for them as an individual. Um, what that actually means, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the um, actual financial constraints and the financial concerns of um, Australian Rugby Union at the moment. But what what I do know is when Australia are playing at the best um, and when I've, I've refereed the Bledisloe maybe five or six times now, and I think Australia have won 50%, if not more. We, 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 know we, do, what, we do love it when you referee Bledisloe Cups. You know that. Well, there's, but there's been some ma magnificent, memorable games that have been played as well. A lot up at, at Suncorp. Um, you know, I remember my first game was in the lead up to 2000 and. 11 um when the number eight um oh the, the big uh Riki Samo. Riki Samo ran the length of the pitch bumping people off and um, to win the the rugby championships um for australia leading into 2011 world cup you know i've got so many great memories of the bledisloe cup so i want australia to be back at the forefront 
um, of international rugby. I think we all do, and this is what I'm really excited about. Some of the um, some of the comments that are coming out around a, a global season and making sure that everyone is competitive again because we we need the likes of um, you know the top ten to be interchangeable week in week out. We want to be able to see a Bledisloe Cup which is competitive um, each year. We want to see Australia coming up to Twickenham giving us a, a proper you know a proper game and you know those cracking games of the early two thousands when they were. 30 points to 32 and last minute scores to, to win the match or, you know, that fantastic series um, in the lead up to the 2003 World Cup. So we, we want everyone to be competitive. So I don't know the ins and outs of what's going on in the ARU, but what, what I hope for everyone, firstly, from a personal point of view, is that we make sure that we get Australia back to the competitive best that they can be. Um, but also that the individuals who, who are suffering at the moment uh, get an opportunity to, um, to work again. All right. And just to finish up, um, and I'm not uh, I'm not pulling the curtain down on your career just yet. After what is it, a couple of hundred premiership games and almost a hundred test matches, I know you're not quite done just yet. But uh, you know, the the kid who grew up working at the Ribena factory, crushing um, what were they blackberries um, uh, during during your school holidays, and and then uh, you know the the non-tackling back rower that uh, that you always say that you were. How will you reflect on your rugby experience? Um, I think it'll be one of the things I'll reflect upon is that conversation in 0708 when someone says, um, "Are you in competition from each other?" I hope well I'll look back at and see a group of international referees who aren't in competition with each other but are just trying to get each other better. Um, and then I'll I'll probably reflect and. Um, have some memories around the game, um, probably late nights or late lunches with some fantastic people across across the world who I now consider friends who I'd never have met um, if it hadn't been for rugby. And I'd include you and Clarkie as as two of those, Nick. You know, um, who would have thought as a 15-year-old spotty um, lad from Bream, refereeing Bream thirds versus Berry Hill Whoppers, um, that I'd be running out um, to referee a Bledisloe Cup match, um, let alone getting to know and getting to meet some of the greats of the game and sitting down afterwards and being able to have a beer with the likes of Martin Johnson or John Schmidt or Richie McCall or George Gregan. You know, those those, those are things that I'll reflect and pinch myself um, at. But I hope what I'll do is also leave the, the refereeing fraternity in a slightly better developed place. And hopefully that the referees will be able to have a, a voice um, going forward, a more active voice. Because if you think about it, we've, you know, the Six Nations we, referees are only 13 of us, and we had about 500 caps between us. And we only referee six or seven times a year. So there's a huge amount of experience on that. We've been I've been involved in four World Cups, Nigel Owens, four World Cups, Roman Poit, three World Cups. So we, we've all got this wealth of experience, and we want to give to the game because we're so passionate about the game as referees. That's why we got involved in it. So if we can, you know, when I do hang up my whistle, if I've left behind, you know, a referee voice, and if I've left behind the referees actually as a collective, um, I've got my personal memories to myself. But if I've improved the, improved the game a little bit on that front, then um, you know that might make me a, a leader, but it'll make me a happy man. Nicely done, Wayne Barnes. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Oh, pleasure, Nick. Good to speak as ever. Wayne Barnes on this week's Playmakers Playbook, the man right now regarded as the best rugby referee in the world. 
The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on The Playmakers Playbook. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.